Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the word world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, and the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing, Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for the lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations. As when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices, they sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord they shout from the west. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away. I waste away, woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Terror in the pit and the snare upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgressions lie heavy above it, and it falls and will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit, and they shall be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I invite you to join with me in prayer. Father, again, uh, we pause, having just heard your word read, and now uh, in the awareness of our weakness, we look to you to ask for your help. 
that you would help me as I seek to speak in a way that communicates your word faithfully, and that you would help us, that we would be able to hear in a way not just that we might understand, but that it would give life, that it would draw us nearer to you and deepen our faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is a short story written by Flannery O'Connor entitled, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Um, Perhaps some of you are familiar with it. It Actually, the main character is a fairly unpleasant character. She's just known as grandmother, and she seems to dislike everyone, looking down on everyone, whether it's family members. She shows racism towards others. She just doesn't seem to see people well. But what happens in this story is things just kind of go take a really dark turn. She and her family get on the side of the road, the car broken down, and they are met by a group of known criminals, murderers, led by a man just known as the misfit. And it's pretty clear at this point that the whole family is done for. Um, This is not a bright story. Um, And so there is this moment, though, where there is this transformation that briefly happens, that the grandmother is talking to the misfit, and she has a gun pointed at her, and it's clear what's about to happen. And, and in this story, it says she looks at him, and the grandmother's head cleared for an instant. She saw the man's face twisted close to her own as if he were going to cry, and she murmured, why, well, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. And it's almost immediately after in the story that she is shot and killed. And then the misfit later on says to one of his uh, other criminal friends, um, she would have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. She would have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. If you're familiar at all with Flannery O'Connor, you know that violence is something that characterizes almost all of her short stories. Um, And this is not something that's accidental. Flannery O'Connor, actually, when she writes, she was a devout Catholic, and she wanted to have, in almost every one of her stories, some moment of grace, some moment when the goodness of God became clear to a person. But for her, one of the key obstacles that her characters faced was a kind of numbness, a callousness, a hardness of heart that needed to be broken through. And and so she says, I have found that violence is strangely capable of returning my characters to reality and preparing them to accept their moment of grace. Their heads are so hard that almost nothing else will work. And that's, that's interesting, and I, I think I, I know what she is talking about. Maybe you do too as you're thinking about it. it, it do you know how, like, when little kids are in an argument and they know that they're losing their argument, they at a certain point will kind of like stick their fingers in their ears and just kind of do stuff like, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, and they'll just keep on making noise so they never have to hear what the other person is saying? There's a sense that I actually think that that's what our world is doing when it comes to thinking about some of those questions that make us especially uncomfortable, the big questions, ones dealing with the fact that someday we are going to die. Dealing with the question of what is the significance of what we are doing. We are busy and busy, but are we accomplishing anything? And, and are we actually even happy? See, these are questions we don't really have to wrestle with because we can look at our phone while we wait in line. 
We can, we can binge Netflix. You don't even have to press a button to see the next episode anymore. We, we have appointments. We have deadlines that we have to fulfill. We have sports scores and, and, and celebrity gossip that we can follow. We have things that we have to bring our kids to and going and going and every day and every day. And we don't even realize it, but all we're doing sometimes is just sticking our fingers in our ears saying, I'm not listening. And that's just life. But is it good life? Or is it just a numb life? I'm reminded there's a a song from my kind of college days by U2, perhaps you're familiar with it, just entitled Numb. And and I think it's about this very phenomenon in our culture. Some of the, the words, don't move, don't talk out of time, don't think, don't worry, everything's just fine, just fine. Don't grab, don't clutch, don't hope for too much. Don't breathe, don't achieve, or grieve without leave. And then the chorus, I feel numb. I feel numb. Too much is not enough. And that, that does kind of describe things, doesn't it? We, we keep on doing things, we keep on doing things, we try to make sure that we're filling ourselves with busyness and distractedness, and, and we just keep on trying to experience more and more, but too much is never enough, and what we discover in the end is that we are numb. And, and we are thoroughly cut off at times from those questions that actually are very core to our humanity about life and meaning and death. And the question is, what can break through that fog, that, that, that barrier that can open us again to the reality that we are running away from, that we are avoiding? And, and, and when we ask the question, we probably know at least part of the answer. Oftentimes it seems like something needs to shock us like, you know, really cold water on a hot day that suddenly just, like, wakens us up. Sometimes it can be the loss of a loved one or a near-death experience or violence. That's, that's what Flannery O'Connor's point is, that this violence is one of the ways that she sees in her stories to break through the numbness. When this woman, this grandmother, is experiencing the reality that she is about to die, suddenly the fog dissipates and she is able to see. I want to suggest that this morning's passage um, is meant to function in a, in a similar way. It is, it is dark. If you were paying attention, I don't need to communicate that to you. You already know there is a kind of violence to this passage, not as much in brutality, but just in suffering. But I want us to understand that when God gives us these words, these words that describe the end of the earth and the terrible agony that will take place in the midst of this, when He tells us these things, it is not just so we can know the point, just like with O'Connor's use of violence, is to open up our minds and our hearts to prepare us to actually understand His grace. And I say that because chapters 24 and 25, which we didn't read, but we'll be reading next week, are meant to be read together. Really, in some ways, this is only the first half of a sermon that will take us two weeks. So, So we need to understand that, that when we get to 25, whereas 24 is about the earth, that's repeatedly the earth and the inhabitants of the earth and how they will experience destruction, when we get to chapter 25, we have a story about the mountain. 
Mount, Mount Zion and how there is hope and how through Mount Zion there is healing for the world. You have these two areas, and if you've been following in uh, the book of Isaiah, you will know that these two areas are more than just geography. They're representing two different societies. The earth stands for human culture that has decided to try to live as if God is not at the center, where God is either irrelevant or unimportant or maybe not existent, to just kind of live as if we are all that there is. That's what the earth and its inhabitants stand for, whereas on the other hand, Mount Zion stands for the people of God who have recognized that God is central. There are two societies. If you're familiar with Augustine, you might know that in his famous book, The City of God, he speaks of those two societies as the city of man and the, and the city of God. And he says, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the other, the heavenly love of God, even to the contempt of self. The city of man seeks glory from men, the city of God says to God, you are my glory, the lifter of my head. The city of man delights in its own strength, and the city of God says to God, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. There are two different societies being described. And what we really have here is the intent to help us to see. You best understand a story by going to the end. It's at the end that everything is made clear. And similarly, in chapter 24 and 25, God takes us to the end so that reality might be exposed. We've said that's, that's what judgment is. At the very end of all things, God brings reality to the surface. What is hidden has been now made clear. The lies are broken through. Judgment takes place and we see. And what we see in chapter 24 is meant to disturb us and to waken us up. There are, there are four lies that this passage is meant to break apart. Lies that we tell ourselves that as long as we hold on to, we will not see and we will not be ready to actually understand the grace of God. So, so the first lie, is, we're just going to kind of look through this passage, the first lie that we see in the opening three verses is the idea that we will just keep going on forever. So I've heard it said, uh, I think this is at least according to tradition, that in the time of Roman military when a, an army had been victorious and they were in a parade through the city and the, the general was up front and experiencing all this praise and adulation and was feeling great, that a, a servant was actually given one task always to walk with him right beside his side and the moment he would see this the swell of pride, he would just whisper two words, memento mori. It means remember you are mortal. Memento mori, memento mori, remember you're going to die. And the idea was that our pride so desires to think that we can keep on going that we sometimes are inclined to forget this fundamental truth. And yet, only as we see our finiteness in this world, only as we see the reality of our death can we live well and with clarity. There is a sense, I think, that we are inclined not just to forget our mortality for ourselves individually, but even 
for us as a community. We live daily as if this is always the way things are going to be, as, as if the reality that surrounds us is just how it's going to be next year and the year after forever, that, that every week there's going to be us going to work, us taking out the trash, us making dinner for whoever is there around the table, us seeing the news about what's going on with politics and technology, and that's just always the way it will be. And God says, memento mori. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. There will be an end. The, the, the language here is a language of decreation, meant to remind us actually of the opening chapters of Genesis. In, in Genesis 1, we remember that there is a time, we are told, where not only we didn't exist, but this whole universe didn't exist. Just think of that. The laws of physics didn't exist. God was all there was, and then He just spoke, and the world came. And He spoke, and He filled this earth with life, with animals, with fish, with birds, with plants. He spoke, and it was filled, and it was ordered, and now we read that once again He will speak, and it will be decreated. Verse 3, the earth will be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. All that is good will be gone. We think of our physical health, food, energy. We think of the creature comforts, of, of home with, with protection for us and even things like being able to just have grocery stores and online shopping and entertainment, all will cease. And, and it won't be just true of the people who are most vulnerable, as oftentimes when disasters take place. Did you notice how there was this, as with the weak, so with the strong, as with the powerless, so with the powerful, everyone will experience that this world is going to come to an end at the Word of God. This, today, when you leave church and you look at the world around, as beautiful as it is, hear the words of God saying, memento mori, this earth, this world is coming to an end. And that is the first thing that needs to break through a lie. This will not always be. The, sec the second lie that our passage breaks through is the idea that we are not accountable to anyone. See, we're told here that when we talk about the end of the world and the suffering that's going to be endured, there is a clear cause. It talks about the, in verse 4 through 6, the earth is, is mourning. Why? Because it is defiled under its inhabitants. We are the cause we're the reason that this world is going to come to an end. And specifically, it says the inhabitants have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. What, what is that, the, the everlasting covenant? Well, again, going back to Genesis, we're told that when God makes us, He, he gave us instructions, which was basically just telling us the way things were. He's saying, I, I give you all of this world, all of its beauty for you to enjoy and to cultivate. But for you to be able to do it, you need to understand there's a way that it can work and only one way that it can work. And that is, I need to be your God and you have to be my people. That, that's the point, actually, of 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not just about a fruit. To, it's a tree that represents our choosing to go our own way, our choosing to be in charge of our own lives, our choosing to disobey. And God says, if you eat that tree, if you choose to be the center rather than me, it cannot work. There will be a curse of death. I am your God, I love you, and I love to be your God, and if you choose to reject me, there will be consequences. That is the reality. That's the eternal covenant. It is this agreement where God is saying, you are accountable to me. We, we understand this idea of accountability. Um, we're... Many of us have bosses, have managers, and, and, and we recognize that when we um, are given an assignment by them, we're expected to fulfill those assignments. And if somehow things don't go well, we understand there will be consequences. But yet when we talk about, about God, we, we find ourselves offended by the idea of judgment. I mean, by what I just said about God choosing to end this world, there's something that oftentimes rubs us the wrong way about that, as if we don't have to answer to the God who made us. But, but do you realize how absurd that is? Scripture clearly speaks that what we are enduring, even the disasters that throughout the world, it is because of us. Verse 6, therefore a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. God is saying one day this curse that you have brought upon yourself by breaking your eternal covenant, by breaking this eternal covenant, will come to its fullness and you will experience the consequences. And the point is, you and I need to understand that we are answerable to God. We, we need to have in our mind the reality that you and I one day will meet God face to face and he is our judge. And we will be expected to give an account for our lives to the one who owns us, to the one who made us, to the one to whom we owe all obedience. Do you realize that you are not your own, but you are accountable to God? God breaks through the lies kind of shocking us through this, this, this imagery. But there's a third lie that God also seeks to break through, and that is that you and I can be happy apart from him. If we move from verse 6 to verse 7, we have a somewhat strange image. What appears is the setup for a party here. You've got wine to drink, you have instruments to be playing, like there's a tambourine, there's a lyre, you have people who look like they would be the life of the party, the merrymakers, you have a city that seems ready for something like a Mardi Gras, everything for something celebratory except there is silence, there is grayness, there is solemnity, it says the wine itself mourns, there is no delight in the drinking, the, the, the instruments are, are quiet, there is no dancing. The, the, the life of the party people are, are melancholy. There is no joy. 
And even the city itself, if there are inhabitants, they stay boarded up. They do not come out. There is nothing going on. It is empty. And we're explicitly told what it's empty of. All joy, verse 11 tells us, has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Gladness is sent away. There is no more gladness in this city. And then we see... For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations. There will be a day where all joy is completely removed. And I think we're meant to ask why. What is causing this? And the contrast for what is next explains this for us. And in verse 14, they lift up their voices. They sing for joy. At the end of verse, or verse 16, from the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise. Not only is there joy, but there is singing, there is delight. There's something else that is going on that is very different from this lifeless ghost town of a city. And what is it that makes it different? Well, again, going back to verse 14, they lift up their voices, they sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout. The difference between these two cities, we might say, is one is completely without God, and one is filled with joy because of God's presence. See, what God is saying here is there will come a day when I will give you exactly what you are asking for. You are asking for a life without me. You are saying you would rather not have me be involved. You want to go your own way, do your own thing, be independent of me. And there will be a day where I will give you exactly that. And only then will you realize that all along when you've been seeking happiness, when you've been seeking joy, you have been seeking me. You know, one of the the great tragedies of when someone close to us dies is sometimes it's only through their loss that we come to realize just how valuable they were to us, and we wish we would have seen it while we still had them. And God says that is what will happen to this world. Only when He has removed Himself will we realize that every moment of joy, everything that was delightful was given to us by God as an expression of His mercy and His love, and it was meant as echoes of His glory to point us beyond themselves to Him. Every every scent of a newborn baby, every vision of a sunset, every embrace of a loved one, these echo beyond themselves declaring the glory of God, and it is the glory of God itself that we are longing for above all things. We cannot have joy apart from God because joy is found in God. This is what Augustine pointed out. He said, our hearts are restless. We keep on thinking that we're finding what we're looking for. We never are satisfied. Why? Because our hearts are restless until they will rest in God because joy is found in Him. You cannot be happy apart from God. It seems to me that as we grow as Christians, we grow more and more into the knowledge of this. At first, when we come to Christ, when we're seeking to obey, oftentimes we obey simply because we know we're supposed to. We're told that we should pray. We're told that we should be sexually pure, and we, we want to be obedient. But then as we grow older, we start realizing, actually, as God is telling me these things, I, 
I'm going to obey them because I don't want that other life. I don't, I don't want a life of selfishness. I don't, I don't want to submit myself to pornography. I don't, I don't want to be flying off the handle in anger and bitterness. I don't want those things. And so, so we start desiring to do what is good for, for those reasons. But then it seems to me as we continue to grow, we even become more focused on why we want to do this. The psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? But there is nothing I desire apart from you, O God. And as we grow, we come to realize, yes, Lord, what I want in these things is you. In you is found all joy and delight. And in this somewhat, actually very dark picture, we are shown the reality that on that last day, it will be exposed, that reality, that everything that we have sought apart from God cannot be found unless we have God. And there will be darkness. One final lie that is broken through in the final verses is, is simply this, the The belief that even as we're seeing these things, we might say, yes, these things might be true in the abstract. Yes, it might be true that the world has an end and that we are accountable to God and that we cannot find happiness apart from God. Yes, that might be true for people other than me, but not for me. Because that's oftentimes the way that we respond to words like this. We we, we make it into the abstract, but, but God clearly says in these final verses, there is no escape and there are no exceptions. That, that when I come to bring judgment, those who seek to flee at the sound, it will be like as if they fall into a pit. And even as they climb out of the pit, they will fall into a trap. There is no way to get away from my judgment. And similarly, those who feel like they might be too strong, too powerful, the, the great leaders of the heavens, the great kings of the earth, I will gather and I will put together in prison. And literally, though it says here, I will punish, literally it's I will visit That is, I will appear to them face to face in the same way that I appeared to Isaiah, and they will say, woe is me. No one will be accepted from this. There will be no escape from all those who dwell in the earth. All will recognize on the last day that the Lord of armies reigns and that he is king. That's what these verses are meant to awaken us to. I, I, I want to say before moving on, this is not just scare tactics. This is not just violent language to try to persuade us. God is trying to tell us the way things really are. He really is God. He really is the one we are accountable to. We really do need Him. And when we turn away, we are seeking our own destruction, and one day that will be clear. And we need to understand this. But I also want to bring us back to a point that I made right near the very beginning. The purpose of these words is never for the sake of bringing about despair. It's for the sake of breaking through our numbness and callousness so that we can be ready to hear with open hearts the words of grace. That God has for us. I've already mentioned that in chapter 25, we now hear the story not of the earth, but of the mountain, Mount Zion. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of armies 
will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, for the Lord has spoken. Do you hear what God is saying? Yes, all of those things are true, but my desire is not your destruction. My desire is your salvation. What we have in these two chapters when we bring them together is God calling us, flee from the earth and come to my mountain. Speaking more literally, he's saying, turn away from this life where you are living on your own. It is self-destruction. It has no future. And turn to Christ. I have given my son. I have given my son to save you so that as you experience the end It will only be but a beginning through his resurrection. As you come before my throne, you will come not in fear but boldly because you stand in Christ and stand spotless before the throne because of Christ Jesus. And as you come to recognize that your hope is only found in me, you will also be filled with the Spirit and filled with joy because you have everything in Christ. My longing for you is not your destruction but is your salvation. Because our God, He is King, He reigns, and He is a God of mercy. And His desire is to wipe away every tear from our eyes so that we might join in a feast with Him on a day where there is no more death. And He calls us to entrust ourselves to Him. Invite us to take a moment in in prayer before this God, quietly, maybe to confess our sins where we have sought to push him away and and to cling to the reality of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus in prayer. Would you join with me in silent prayer and then I will lead us in a couple minutes' time.